It's been a real joy and a privilege to open up God's Word with you this week. Um, I'm very grateful for uh, Danny asking me to go through this series as I've interacted with several of you through the week. I think the Lord's really used it uh, and hopefully given you some tips on how to read the Old Testament, uh, to appreciate the Old Testament. And I pray as you leave this place and go back into your homes and in your ministries or uh, into your churches, and as you serve the Lord there, I pray that you'd worship Him and get into the Word more. The Word is the source of our of our uh, strength. Um, the Word is the source of our knowledge of the Lord God and the Lord Jesus and what He's done, uh, which is our strength. And uh, I pray that you would just be in it and learn from it and grow from it. Uh, as you think through leaving this place, I, I pray that, I, that you would even consider, you know, Getting into the Word personally, maybe even collectively uh, in a small Bible study, talk to your pastor, get some ideas from him on how you can implement some of these things. And I want to make aware uh, to you even another option that you could have in continuing to learn, uh, continuing to grow in your knowledge of God's Word. I do teach at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, especially if you have a bachelor's degree. We have a lot of modules that we offer. Some of these modules are things that you can actually enroll in. Uh, even if you're not really after any kind of a degree, you could take it for credit, but you can also just audit it. Auditing it would just be sitting in the class and being fed by God's Word, being better equipped to study His Word. One class that I didn't put on this list, I just grabbed a quick little sampling with some dates and the contents that you might be interested in. The Introduction to Biblical Counseling by Jeff Newman is an evening class designed for laymen. You could just take that class. Uh, pretty much all of these classes, maybe even all of them, are available online. So even if you are, say, in Wisconsin or some distance, I would encourage you to go and be there in person. But if that's not possible, you could log in online and uh, join the class from a distance. A great class that really benefited my wife was Introduction to Biblical Exegesis with Dr. Doug Brown. That's a May module. Uh, that would be a good one to jump into as well. Those are two classes that I just really kind of highlight for lay people. Consider it. Consider learning, kind of like what we were talking about last night. Consider continuing to grow in your knowledge of God's Word and then uh, being a more useful tool by the Lord in your local church. But first and foremost, always keep in mind uh, your, your church. Uh, we are an extension of the local church. Be talking to your pastor and involve him in, any, in these decisions that you make concerning further education. Uh, if you want to talk to me about that or any of uh, the content from this week, of course, feel free to reach out to me. My email is just my last name, first initial, at faith.edu. So little t at faith.edu. Feel free to contact me, and uh, I'll do my best to help you in whatever way that I can. Uh, today is our last day. I did give you a little bit of an assignment last night or yesterday for the scripture and action section from 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to just uh, have you turn in your Bibles there to 2 Timothy 2. First, 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, I really do love the New Testament. It's great just digging into the scriptures. Uh, so many times I'm working through some New Testament passage, and, you know, it just reminds me of the old. And that's in 2 Timothy 2 as well. You can see the Old Testament right here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start right at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7, and then we'll open in prayer. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this last day that I have, that you've given me to open your word and to provide some principles concerning prophecy uh, to the, uh, the attendees here of, of uh, Family Camp One at the Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. 
I pray, Lord, as we go through and look at your word, um, that we may uh, be renewed within. Uh, May your spirit convict of sin. Help us to walk in the newness of life. Lord, we thank you for your word. May we read it. May we study it and give us a love for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 is a key text for pastors, for young men that might be interested in the ministry. The Apostle Paul gives some explicit instructions, but then the the focus that I want to, um, the section that I want to focus on is these illustrations that he gives. And this would connect to our content from yesterday with Proverbs. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Okay, he uses an analogy. Okay, he uses an illustration. And this illustration is a soldier. What is it about the soldier? He then explains the soldier, okay? Do you see what he does? A soldier, okay? What's the point of comparison? What is the point of comparison? He tells us explicitly what it is. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Oh, what is a soldier devoted to and focused on doing? Fighting, okay? That's his focus. He's in a battle, and he's not going to get distracted with these menial affairs of this life. When I have students coming into Hebrew Grammar 1, I, I, I quote this verse. <laughs> I send them an email before class starts, and I tell them this verse, and I tell them, examine your life now. What is in your life that is just an affair of this world that is distracting you? And get rid of it. If you want to succeed at Hebrew, I know, it's, if you want to succeed at being a pastor, this is what you need to do, all right? But if you want to succeed at Hebrew, you've got to get rid of all this junk in your life that's really just pulling you aside and distracting you. Um, that's the message. So do we see the point of comparison there? He explicitly states the point of comparison in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, the next one, look at the next illustration. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, so what's the analogy? So you have athletics. And when we think of athletics, we think of a lot of different things. Remember metaphors? Okay, athletics, you have to be hardworking. Okay, you have to be very disciplined. Those are very valid applications for athletics. But that's not what he goes to. What is his focus point? What is the connecting point? Okay, this is like this in what way? The rules. He has to abide by the rules. Fascinating that that's the the highlight that Paul draws on the athlete. Because so often when we think of the athlete, we think of the perseverance and the race and then continuing the race all the way to the end. But that's not what he says here in this section. He actually focuses on competing according to the rules. Have you ever thought of like Solomon and all of his greatness with, with all of his wives. You ever think of like a Jewish boy in the days of Solomon and thinking to himself, wow, God is blessing. Look at Solomon, all of the wealth. I know, I know, Dad, the law says I have to marry a Jewish girl, but Solomon didn't. And look, God is blessing. See, we evaluate things according to the wrong, unbiblical, parameters. Was Solomon complete competing according to the rules? And that's the message here in 2 Timothy 2. We need to be competing according to the rules. Anyway, that's more of evaluate your ministry thing, and that's not the one I really want to get to. Let's go to the last one. You ponder that one a little bit. Uh, and then the last point here, okay, verse 6. Verse 6, he, this is the third illustration, and this is the one that really registered with me, and it really helped me personally in my walk with the Lord, and I couldn't believe what Paul did here and how he did it. And I'm like, this is so Old Testament. 
the hard-working farmer must be the first partake of the crops. Boom! He's done. What did he just do? Think about it. Take a moment. Okay? I want you to think about it. Because Paul said to think about it. Do you see what the next verse is? What does he say? Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. He says to think about it. (laughs) What did Paul just do with this third illustration? So in the previous two, this is like this in this way. This is like this in this way. The soldier, okay, he, he works hard and he's not distracted. Okay, he's not a, a, a distracted by the affairs of this world. The athlete competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer... Are you seeing it? It's not there. He's just a hard-working farmer. He doesn't explain it. With the first two, he actually walked them through the, the whole thing and he applied it. But with the last one, he says, the hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Ah. Uh, Yep. Great. So finish it out for me here, friend. And then what does he say? No, I'm not gonna. I want you to think about it. It's Proverbs. He's being the sage, and he's wanting them to put the pieces together. And what are the pieces? He's speaking to preachers here. He's speaking to pastors You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'm at verse 1, now verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The farmer is the one that's going out there and he's planting the seed, okay? And then the seed grows, and then what does he do? He consumes the the fruit of his labors. And he's the first one to do that. As a preacher, somebody who's opening up God's word, what am I doing as I'm standing before you and I'm explaining the word of God to you right now? I'm metaphorically sowing the seed. And I want you to eat it. What has to happen first? I've got to eat it first. But he doesn't explain it. Proverbially, he tells them this is what, uh, to think about it. And what a powerful truth that is, as I thought through, and there's actually another preacher, I've forgotten his name now, but um, that, that walked me through this to help me to realize, oh, you know what's going to help me in my preaching, in my communication? I've got to eat it. I've got to eat it. So here you have Proverbs in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's creating these analogies and um, telling them to think about it without giving them the answer and expecting them to put the pieces together. It's just like what we were talking about yesterday. All right, uh, now I want to go through and just kind of overview all of the things that we've been going through all of this week. We've went through five different approaches to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not canonical. Marcion's just said, throw it away. It's not part of the Bible. We shouldn't be reading it. Andy Stanley and the liberals of old said, just, you know, just ignore it, unhitch, let it go, okay? Allegorize it. Let's just allegorize it and spiritualize it because we can't really figure out what it's meaning. Christologizing or typologizing, sometimes that's legitimate. Sometimes there is a type. Sometimes there is this Christological meaning in the text. Um, but really what we want to do is we want to develop this biblical theology of the Old Testament. What did it mean to them, and then how does that apply to us? So we went through these five different approaches to studying the Old Testament. 
The second day, we went through narrative, and we talked about the narrative mainline. We discussed how you have, like, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Those are just the menial details. The, the author, the narrator, he's getting to something, and you need to look for the sections that he spends a lot of time on. Uh, locating the scenes, developing the characters, uh, looking at the point of view. What is the point of view that's being portrayed in that narrative? The third day, we studied poetry, and we deal, dealt with a lot of technical terminology. A couple of quick points, just parallelism. A is so, what's more, B is so. A is so, what's more, B is so. And when you think through imagery, think through, this is like this in this way. So we studied some poetry. Yesterday, we went through the Proverbs. We talked about how Proverbs are comparative. They're creating this, this uh, connection. They can be kind of puzzling. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7. Consider, think about it, but it's very applicatory. Finally, we, saw, we have this idea that a proverb is just this short, pithy statement, but actually, a lot of times, they could be a lot longer. So we discussed the proverb. Uh, as we went through those proverbs, I encourage you to be thinking. We looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 12. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Wearisomeness is actually not a bad thing. It's actually something that we're supposed to do. Just like the nature itself does what it's supposed to do, our bodies do what they're supposed to do, I encourage us to study and to think and to be better thinkers. Now today we're going to look at prophecy. And some of you might really, really love prophecy. And uh, others like, well, <laughs> not so much. Well, whether you like it or not, guess what the Old Testament has lots of? Prophecy. Growing up uh, as a young man, um, I had a, a very close friend. We were the same age. We were in all of the, the grade school classes together. Uh, his dad was a professor at Cornell University. I grew up in upstate New York. Uh, my dad was a small business owner and was a man of his hands. So we had very different backgrounds. When we um, graduated from high school and were looking at colleges, I went to the small college that my pastor went to, that my uncles went to. The name of that college was Practical Bible College. It's now called Davis College, and it's, I don't even know if it really exists anymore. I think they've gone completely online or something. Anyway, uh, I just went to that small Bible college, and he went to Wheaton uh, Wheaton University in the Chicago area. Some of you may be familiar with that school. It's a pretty well-known, prominent educational institution. We were both interested in the ministry. Um, after about three years, as we kept you know, conversing and talking back and forth, uh, I started to notice my friend actually saying some things that I was uh, not super familiar with or just didn't quite sound exactly right. At that institution, my best friend growing up, okay, he changed his beliefs. He no longer believed in a future kingdom um, for, that Jesus is going to have here on this earth. He just believed that life is going to continue as it is on this earth right now, and then Jesus is going to come back, and then it's over. Whereas we believe that the promises in the Old Testament, they're going to continue uh, they're going to continue. The promises in the Old Testament, they will be fulfilled in a future kingdom which Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. Now, some of you might be like, woo, you're flying over my head here, okay? We're talking about prophecy. What is the plan? What is God's plan for the future? Well, the Old Testament is rich with all kinds of information about the end times. And through this time period with my friend, I realized you know, I had to work through, how important is this? How important is prophecy? You know, I think there's going to be this kingdom that Jesus is going to have on this earth in the future. And he's just is like, oh, it's just going to end. Well, when Jesus comes back, we'll figure it all out, right? And then we're good to go. And some people really think that way and that it's not a, that big of a deal. Prophecy is not that important. I would contend prophecy is actually much more important than you think because it's everywhere. See, we live in America where we have a lot of nice things. 
most of the world doesn't have all of this niceness. Too often we think that, like, this is the kingdom. It's not. The kingdom is something that's coming, and it's going to be way better than even what we have right here, right now. You know, during World War I and World War II, everything is getting destroyed. People are dying all the time. And what were people looking forward to during those times? The kingdom. We have been able to live in relative peace. And I think as a result, we don't look forward to that kingdom, to that peace of that king. I pray as we look at prophecy today that you would have a greater desire to study prophecy. And as a result, you wouldn't be like, oh, who's the Antichrist? Or how is this all going to happen? Or whatever else. I pray instead that you know what you would do? You just look and see God. And you just marvel in his greatness and his beauty and his power. So prophecy is important. And I hope that as we work through this that you find value to it. Prophecy can be difficult because a lot of the principles that we've gone through the last two days, particularly with poetry, that's prophecy. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. We're going to be in Isaiah 52 and then Daniel chapter 7 as we go through this content. And uh, then I'm going to give you some application, I pray, that, uh, that encourages you from, uh, from a prophetic text. Isaiah chapter 52. Now, do you see all of the white spaces on the page in Isaiah 52? What does that mean that we have? Poetry, all right? Isaiah 52 is a prophetic text, a prophetic text. Now, you could just flip forward and backward in Isaiah, okay? You know, you're right there. You can see all of these pages and pages and pages. And do you see all the white places, right? It's all poetry, it's all poetry. So you have to be thinking through it. Now, not all of it is the end times from our perspective. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, um, but it's poetry. And so you're going to have to think figurative and, and these figures of speech when you think of poetry. And then second, though, I want to talk about a different kind of poetry. There's this other kind of poetry called uh, apocalyptic apocalyptic. And I want to just, we're just looking broadly. Now, keep your finger in Isaiah 52, but go over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And take a look at a page like Daniel chapter 7. Look at Daniel chapter 8. Look at Daniel chapter 9, okay? These are also prophetic texts. And what do you see on Daniel 7, 8, and 9? Not a lot of white stuff. Okay, there's a whole lot more ink because this isn't poetry, it's prose. It's prose. And when you read Daniel chapter 7, it's like, man, there's these beasts and these animals and they're doing these weird things and they're all deformed and there's all this crazy stuff happening. This is apocalyptic and it's communicating in a different way. Apocalyptic is prosaic prophecy communicated through symbolism. Now, I talked to you a couple of days ago about symbolism and that we are going to review it today when we hit on the section of poetry or of prophecy. And symbolism would be the, um, <clears throat> the representation of one thing by something else. That's a very basic definition. Some would probably not like that definition, like it's, it's a little too basic. But we're going to see how it fleshes out a little bit. And I pray that it is helpful for you. So it's the representation of one thing by something else. Now, Daniel chapter, uh, the representation of one thing by something else. Now, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. What do we have? We have these beasts, these animals. You have this bear. You have this lion. And what are they doing? <clears throat> what are these animals doing? Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea. Oh, that's weird. Each different from the other. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. 
and a man's heart was given to it. Oh, so we have this beast. It's a, it's a lion. It loses its wings, and then it stands up like a man. What's going on here? What does this mean? What is the, uh, how do I interpret it? A lot of times with symbols, if you just keep reading, you'll actually get a little bit of a, an explanation. Look at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17. Daniel 7, verse 17. In this specific text, Daniel asks, uh, hey, messenger, what does this mean? And then he tells us. Verse 17, those great beasts, which are four, they're four kings, which arise out of the earth. Oh, well, there we go. So what does that beast stand for? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes a king. Was that hard? Well, when it tells you what it is, it's not. Now, you might be thinking, well, what king is it? And then that's where we get to have a lot of fun and some conversations. And somebody may say it's one king, and somebody may say it's another king. With a lion, nobody really kind of questions it. It's like, okay, yeah, that really sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, all right? The first king of Babylon. But a lot of people, they look at these beasts, and they're like, look, there's the Babylonian kingdom. They look at the bear, and they're like, oh, look, there's the Medo-Persian kingdom. But what did the text say? What did the text say? They're kings. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, okay, so the third beast, that's, you know, Alexander the Great. That's the, the Greece, the kingdom of Greece. Well, who's the fourth beast? Oh, that's the Roman kingdom. What did we just do? Oh. Who is? The fourth beast. It's a king. You can study that out for yourself. <clears throat> so you have this symbolism, and that's what symbolism truly is, okay? Now, some people, they take symbolism, and I'll just contend, they're going to take it way too far. Uh, this definition of symbolism, I think, is still a good definition of symbolism, but I want you to go back to Isaiah 52 now, okay? But the application of symbolism is really illegitimate. What is apocalyptic? It is prose. It's, a, it's like a story where you have these animals. Look, read Revelation, and you have a very similar thing. There, it's, it's prose. It's not poetry. In Isaiah, what do we have? Poetry. Do we understand? It's something different. Now, might there be a symbol here and there through the, uh, through the poetry? Yeah, but it's really rare. Usually you're using other figures of speech, like metaphors, metonymy, synecdoche, and all those fancy words that you don't remember from two days ago. Okay? The symbol, according to him, is a symbol is an image, a character, a setting, or event that exists in its own right, Okay, the beast exists in its own right. Well, sort of. I mean, it's a lion that has wings that are then plucked off, and then he becomes a man, and he's given a human heart. Okay. But also points to or represents one or more other things. Now, in Isaiah 52, as we look at this text, Isaiah 52, we're going to just be here very briefly because I want to show you how symbolism is different than the poetry which we discussed two days ago. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. In verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices with their voices, they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back to Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. There are several figures of speech here that are being employed. At the end of verse 8, it states, when the Lord brings back to Zion. This is not a figure of speech. 
the Lord will literally regather the children of Israel in Zion in the end of days. When we talk about the Holocaust, we uh, have this concept of a massacre of the Jewish people that has never happened before and will never happen again. In fact, that's what the Jewish nation says. It's never going to happen again. We won't let it happen. That's why the country of Israel has such a strong military because they're like, it's not going to happen again. Guess what God's word teaches? There's a worse Holocaust coming. And at the end of that really bad Holocaust, Isaiah 59, okay? Very fascinating study. I thought about taking you there. I'm not going to, all right? Um, what is the Lord going to do? He's going to gather Israel back, and they're going to come back to Jerusalem. And that's what we have here. And after that time of suffering, the Lord brings them all back. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do? Verse 8, your watchmen will lift up their voices, and their voices shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back to Zion. They're shouting in jubilation in verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? A city. How is a city redeemed? What does that mean that he has redeemed Jerusalem. When we think of the redemption of Israel, we should be thinking of the Exodus. Because what did God do in the Exodus? He redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt. There's a second redemption, a second Exodus that's coming when God is going to bring them all back together into Jerusalem. So when he says redeem Jerusalem, what does that mean? Jerusalem represents the Jewish people and their city, their habitation. They're in the nation of Israel. That's what Jerusalem represents. It's the people of Jerusalem. We see a city representing a people repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. But Riken, what does he do with this passage? Jerusalem was the site of the temple and the center of worship for the nation. But the symbolism in this passage and elsewhere is even more extensive than the Old Testament people of Israel. It's more than the people of Israel. In this oracle of salvation, Jerusalem, what's the word that he uses? Symbolizes the total body of believers in all places and times. These are the Jerusalem that is redeemed. According to Riken, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is just a symbol for all of those who are redeemed. That's an improper use of symbolism. He's confused the terminology. We see this kind of stuff, and you might be thinking, oh, man, preacher, you know, can I really understand this? Can I really get this? And I'm like, you know what? Just study it out and have fun. It's a lot of fun to study through this stuff. I love it. When you're studying through the Old Testament and you're looking at these prophecies, there's a couple more principles I'm going to get you quick, uh, give you quick. One is that figuring out which prophecy applies to what is kind of difficult. There's the near, far, and then there's even farther in the future. Remember, Isaiah's prophesying in Oh, 720 B.C., okay? We'll just say 720. And so he's prophesying in 720 B.C. That means the destruction of Jerusalem is 150 years in the future. That means the coming of the Messiah is 720 years in the future. That means the end of the world is thousands of years in the future. So from Isaiah's perspective, guess what? It's all future. And he's talking about all of those different time periods, and so when we're reading through it, you know, we're just kind of like boom, 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 boom. And like, whoa, man, there's a whole pile of years here between this and this. But to Isaiah, he's just like boom, boom, flying right through. We see an illustration of this in Isaiah 61. Oh, I was going to take you there. Um, I'm really learning a lot of time, and I want to do my last thing, so I'm going to skip it. Go to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and compare it to the New Testament. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, write it down. You can study it for yourself. 
and look at the cross-reference to the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled the beginning of verse 2, but not the end. Well, he didn't fulfill it yet. He's going to fulfill the rest of it in the future. So Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is a great illustration of that. The final point that I have here is that it is understandable. So often we just give up and we're like, man, I can't figure this thing out. And then we just like, eh, whatever. Study it out. Go after it. It is understandable. You can figure it out. And sometimes you do just need to say, you know what? The word is the word and I'm a man and I, I am, uh, I'm struggling, all right? But I would encourage you to really think and try to process through it. Have some, some fun with it and glorify the Lord in the process. Okay, so here we go. I'm, I'm trying to wrap stuff up. I'm wanting to go to Isaiah 13 at the end. I want to spend a little bit of time in prophecy. And so Isaiah 13 is the last text that I want to look at with you today. Yeah, well, I'm going to jump to a couple others quick at the end to help apply this to the New Testament saints that you are. But Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13 begins a new section in the book of Isaiah. You can see the first two words here, Isaiah 13, 1, the burden. There are a series of burdens that Isaiah declares in Isaiah 13 through 23. If you turn the page over to Isaiah 15, 1, you'll see that you have the burden against Moab. There's a short one in Isaiah 14, 28 through 32 as well, actually. Isaiah 14, 28, this is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died, okay? So our burden here, our text is Isaiah 13, 1 through Isaiah 14, 27. Do you see that? Isaiah 13, 1 through 14, 27. So get comfortable because we're going to be here for a long time. We have two chapters to study. No, I'm not going to do that with you. As I look out here, till you're, you're looking like you're, you're struggling a little bit, okay? Stick with me on this. This is something that's really impacted me personally again. You know, I have the opportunity to come and share God's word for you, with you. I've taken some things that have impacted me personally. I've tried to add a teaching component to it. We've done that teaching component. I hope it was helpful. Now here's going to be some of the more practical stuff. I'm still going to make you work a little bit, Okay. Uh, as you look at the word, I want you to see it. I want you to see it in the Bible. I'm just the messenger. The Bible is the thing. Is the Bible is the source of the truth? Let's drink the Bible, just like Psalm one teaches. Okay, let's drink it right now. I'm going to focus on verses one through thirteen. One through thirteen, chapter thirteen, verses one through thirteen, and I pray that God is glorified as we see Him at work eschatologically, at the end of days, eschatologically just means at the end of time, okay? As we, as we see God eschatologically, may we glorify and praise him for who he is and what he's done. Lift up a banner, I'm in verse two. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Okay, A is so, what's more, B is so. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter. Who are we talking about? Well, you just read one verse. We don't have a clue. <laughs> That's exactly right. Isaiah is communicating poetically. He's giving us this, like, get us wondering, like, what? Huh? What's going on here? What's up with the banner? Who's the them? Have you ever read a novel? Have you ever watched a movie? What's a lot of times what they do? They like give you this little spoiler thing and it gets you thinking and it's like, man, what's going to happen? How's that going to flow into the story? It's this delayed identification and that's what he's doing here. It's like, huh? What's going on? I don't know anybody or anything that's going on here, but we have a banner on a high mountain. Somebody's shouting out and they're waving their hand, okay? It's like they're trying to get somebody's attention, you put the banner up, boom, okay, yeah, come on. And then you're shouting out, hey, over here, come on, save me, I'm drowning, or whatever. They're not drowning, they're in Israel. <laughs> they're trying to get somebody's attention, though. We get a little bit more information into verse 3. 
I have commanded, and look at the three descriptions. By the way, threes are a big thing in the Bible, in poetry. You know, you had three descriptions. Lift up the banner, raise your voice, wave your hand. Now in verse, verse 3, I have commanded who? My sanctified ones, my holy ones. I have also commanded my mighty ones. These are like the warriors for my anger. Third description, those who rejoice in my exaltation. Okay, do you see the A is so? What's more B is so? What's more C is so? Who are these people? First description, they are holy ones. They're these sanctified ones. They're these warriors that are going to execute God's anger. That's interesting. Okay, but then this last description, they're not just these warriors that are fighting and holy, but they're rejoicing in God's exaltation. So here we have this, uh, this holy army, this sanctified host, and there's some kind of a battle that's going on. Now look at verse 4. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. What a phrase. God is going to war. <laughs> I'm reading The Lord of the Rings to my kids right now. And uh, we're on book three, you know, The Return of the King. And we just went through, you know, like the helm's deep. And here you've got the king and he's bringing in his army and they're going to war. Well, here we don't have some earthly king, but who's the king? Who's the one going to war? Do we see that? God always works through these human instruments. He always uses these people, but this time, he's leading the army. Verse 5, they come from a far country from the end of heaven. Who is God's army in Isaiah 13? They don't come from the ends of the earth. They come from the ends of heaven. This is a heavenly host. That's why they are sanctified ones. That's why they rejoice in his exaltation. The Lord is coming to battle. He's coming to battle for his people. Verse 5 then. They come from a far country. They come from the end of the, of the earth. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole world. So now as we've gone through this verse, we can see, okay, this is a very eschatological, a very end times passage. The whole world is about to be destroyed by the Lord Almighty. Why does he do that? Why does God destroy his creation? Why does he destroy the whole world? He did it before. Why did God destroy the whole world at the beginning in Genesis? Because of sin. Why is God going to destroy his creation this time? Let's read about it. Verse 6. Wail, cry, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Look at the figure of speech here. You know, if you're going to go out for war, you want to have a strong hand to hold that sword, to be able to fight. But before the Lord Almighty with his heavenly hosts, you're like, uh, <laughs> what do I do? I can't do anything. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and your hand, it becomes limp. Look at the next description. Every man's heart will melt. You know, be strong and courageous. A regular command throughout the Old Testament scriptures as Israel would go to war. But here before God Almighty, their hearts, they just melt. There's no courage because they can't do anything. They will all be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. That was a longer verse, and what is it describing? In rather graphic detail, it is describing death. You know, when Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom, you know, we haven't talked about why yet. You probably know the answer, but we're going to get there, that why. But how? How? 
you know, I, I just always had this idea in my mind to be like an atomic bomb, and it's just kind of like, you know, and it's just over, okay? Because it says it'll be in fire, so it's just like, wipes them out. Is that how it's going to work? What is the description here? How does Jesus describe it? How does God describe it? And Jesus is the one that leads this force, by the way. You can go to Psalm 2 or a host of other passages. But uh, verse 8, they will all be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them, okay? It's going to be painful. They will be in pain like a woman in childbirth. He uses a simile. Do you see that? And it's not something that's just, you know, I don't know, it's a lot of ladies that have had babies here, and don't you wish it was kind of like an atomic bomb, and it's just like, done. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, all right? <clears throat> it takes a while. They will be amazed at one another. You know, there's like this marveling back and forth, and it's just kind of like, Whoa, they're like processing and they're thinking. And then what does it say here, the last description? Their faces will be like flames. And some of your translations may take that phrase differently. It's basically just their faces will be flames. Their faces, flames. That's what they are. And as they see one another, that fire is going to be there and they're going to be burning and they're going to actually be able to process it. They're going to see each other in flames, being able to do absolutely nothing before God Almighty, before Jesus. Jesus is the one that's leading this army. Go to Psalm 2, okay? Jesus leads this army, and they're on fire, and they're seeing one another be incinerated, and they're experiencing that pain and that fire, and then their lives are extinguished, and then where do they go? To more fire. This is the end of days. This is a prophecy. This is not happiness. And Isaiah doesn't paint it as a happy day. Let us continue. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world. Why? For its evil. I will punish the world for its evil, for th and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold and a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Look at the annihilation that God effects at the end of time. Look at verse 12. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. A is so. What's more, B is so. What's that second line? A man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Oh, man, that's pretty rare. A lot of people are going to get wiped out because it's like fine gold and he's wiping them out. What's more, it's like just the fine gold of one specific location. It shows how much sin, uh, it shows the extensive nature of God's wrath as he comes back to this earth and he destroys the sinners from it and absolutely destroys his creation. Verse 13 wraps up our section, and then I want to reflect upon this passage. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Okay, I have just done a very, very quick explanation of this passage. Okay, I know this is new to you. I'm sure, <laughs> well, maybe some of you have actually studied Isaiah 13. It's not typically a passage that we've worked through a lot. But um, I want to just give you uh, a couple of moments to read through this passage on your own and to make observations. What do you see as a recurring theme or recurring words in this text? And then I want to reflect upon that theological, biblical theological truth in Isaiah 13, and I hope to then apply it to your lives 
using even some New Testament teaching. So when the clock says 1028, um, we're going to, I'm going to come back to this, but just read through verses 1 through 13, look for recurring words, uh, what is uh, some of the themes, there are a few themes, okay, but um, let's, let's think about this text a little bit more. Yeah, I'm even hearing some whispering. Talk to your wife. Talk to your neighbor. Uh, talk to your husband. Get together even. That would be good. Okay, time's up. What are some themes? I know I gave you two minutes, you know. If you had like a Sunday school class, you'd say five minutes or ten minutes or whatever. Just kind of throwing it at you. But we have a bigger group here, so let's talk about this a little bit. What are some of the themes? What are some of the repeated words? What's this text teaching us from a biblical theological perspective? There are several I wills. Where do those I will words occur? That's a good observation. Louder? 11 through 13, okay? I will do this. I will do that. I will punish. I will halt. I will make immortal, okay? You have all these I wills. Verse 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth, okay? Great observation. It's interesting where the first person pronouns occur in this passage. You have an 11 through 13, those first person pronouns. You also have first person pronouns in the beginning, in verse 3. I have commanded... I have also called. That's what's one of the things that's binding the section together. Great observation. I wasn't thinking anybody would catch, catch some of that. That was a good observation, all right, of the text. It wasn't the main thing I was after, but it was a good observation. All right, somebody else. Yes. Yes, we have several words repeating this idea of destruction. Is destruction a big theme here? Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere, okay? It's in the beginning, it's in the middle, it's at the end. You have different kinds of destruction. It's not all describing it all the same way. What kind of destruction do you have in verses uh, 7 and 8? Well, verse 8. You have people. What kind of a destruction do you have in verses uh, 10? And um, um, 13, what's that? Yeah, the celestial, okay? So you have these different kinds of destructions. Good. The reason for all the destruction, though, is the sinners. And we've already kind of hit that. Okay, good. Good observations. This is great. What else? Yes. Okay, look at all of the words for for anger, okay? Good observation. Look at verse three. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also commanded my mighty ones, those who rejoice in my exaltation. Do you see those three lines there in verse three? See how they're all parallel, but there's this one phrase that really kind of sticks out. It doesn't quite fit. The phrase that doesn't really fit there in verse three is for my anger, those three words there, if they were not there, you'd have very clear parallelism between the three lines. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've also called my mighty ones. Who are they? They're the ones who rejoice in my exaltation. In fact, it's kind of interesting how some people believe those three words aren't supposed to be in the Hebrew text because they don't fit. 
Maybe Isaiah put them in there for a reason because he was trying to highlight something. In verse 5, they come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation, his weapons of wrath, his weapons of anger. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the wrath of the Lord? It's not exactly a warm, fuzzy topic that fits our American culture. It's a really popular book right now. It's a really good book. Um, I'd even recommend it. Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly. Uh, I think it's by Dave Ortland. Yeah. And um, it really describes how Jesus is very gentle and lowly. Who's leading this army? Jesus. Do we understand that? Okay. If you are repentant and if you are humble and broken before the Lord, you know what you have? You have a gentle and lowly God. But if you're arrogant and if you are defiant before Almighty God, guess what you have? You have a very different God. And what do we have in this text? We have that God against those people. All right, I'm sure there are several more observations that I wanted that you could have brought out of the text, and they would have been very good, but he hit the one that I wanted to hit on, so we're going to keep going with this one. <laughs> I do believe it is the main idea of this passage. Look at all of the words about wrath and indignation. Look at verse 9. The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger. Look at the end of verse 13. Well, all of verse 13. I'll shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of armies, in the day of his fierce anger. Believer, we don't understand this. We don't think through this. The anger of the Lord. God sees sin, and guess what he thinks of it? He hates it, and it makes him angry. And one day, when the earth is so wicked, he's going to... He's going to personally intervene with his heavenly army and he's going to come to the earth and he's going to wipe everybody out. That's your God. That's the punishment that I deserve because I have sinned because I am a sinner because if it wasn't for the grace and the mercy of God I would be numbered with this host I would be one of those arrogant ones defying God Almighty and I would be a recipient of his wrath. Do you understand that? The liberals of old, they don't like this God. They want to just preach, you know, gentle and lowly. And again, I don't mean to disparage the book. There's some good stuff in the book, okay? But a lot of times, as New Testament believers, in studying only the New Testament, we don't understand what we have been saved from. We don't understand, we don't appreciate the, the sacrifice of the Messiah to purchase your redemption. Do we understand that? This is what I deserve, justly it is right of God to punish me in this way because I have defied his law. Turn your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, very familiar passage to us. Romans 3. We're going to start in just verse 23 because we're familiar with Romans 3, 23. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sinned, 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 sinned. What did we see back in Isaiah 13? Sinner, 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 sinner. God's wrath leveled out upon sinners. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's a lot that we could unpack there, but I want to get to the next verse. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, what a word. You know, we use that word all the time. I was just talking to my kid, you know, that propitiation, all right? What does that mean? What does it mean, this propitiation? Does anybody know? I'm hearing some murmurs. I want somebody out there to say it, nice and loud. A payment, a little bit more descriptive than just payment. Wrath-removing sacrifice. Do you understand that? The wrath of the Lord. Isaiah 13. That's what I deserve. Justly. Correctly so. But what? why is it that I do not get that wrath? Because of my faith in the Lord Jesus. And as a result, God doesn't see my sin and my wickedness instead. What does Romans 3.25 say? By his blood, he sees Jesus' sacrifice in my place. When I think through the Christian life and why I want to live a holy life, the motivations for holiness become very self-centered and selfish. They're very meritorious, like I'm going to earn favor with God or any of that. But as you think through the wrath you deserve, the sacrifice that God has provided, your faith in him and how His Jesus' blood affects your salvation how does that drive your heart? How does that drive your, your spirit? What are you inspired to do, believer? How are you inspired to live? Our last passage, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you can see what we're trying to do here, we have the wrath of the Lord, the sacrifice of Jesus that affects our salvation. And what is that? That's our motivation for Christian service. That's our motivation for holy living. Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Okay, why is it that you need to live a holy and just life? Because look at what God has done for you. You deserve the fire. You deserve the wrath of God justly because of your sin. But he's given you so many glorious and beautiful things. He's given you Jesus. He's given you his blood as a payment for your sin so you don't get the wrath of God. He's indwelt you with his Holy Spirit to empower you in holy living. These are the mercies of God that God gives you. That you then do what? That you present your bodies as a dead sacrifice. No. A living sacrifice. A theme that would resonate with an Old Testament audience who sacrificed animal after animal after animal as an atonement, as a covering for their sin. Instead, what am I? I am the sacrifice. And I'm alive. I want to tie this in as I close to even our first night's message as we think through, Lord, look at all you've done. What could I possibly give you in return? You know, we had even us talking to somebody last night 
They're like, what do you think about like tithing, even for like, you know, people in the ministry? And uh, this was a kid, that, just a kid that works here that was asking, you know, he's not making anything. He's working at this camp. <laughs> he's serving you. <laughs> it's a legitimate question, you know. Should I tithe? And, uh, you know, Pastor Sam was there too. And, I mean, we were of one mind. And the answer is yes. Giving begins now. I don't care how poor you are. And this was something that my parents instilled in me, for which I am very grateful, that even when some years, you know, we were very, very poor. We had very, very, you know, little. But just month after month, you know what we need to do? Very first thing we need to do, we need to write that check and give it to the Lord. Because guess what he's given us? Everything. And so often we look at this idea of sacrifice and we put dollar symbols on it. <sighs> Who cares about money? <laughs> oh, my dad owns a business. I love my dad. His birthday was yesterday. And uh, <clears throat> he's given me a, a healthy understanding of money and business. I love my dad and how he's invested in me and taught me and raised me up. And understanding money is just like, who cares? It just is really getting, you know, I don't have a problem asking people for money, you know. You should just be giving your money to the school, to, or to the camp, to the school. <laughs> I'm used to that line. Because God owns it all anyway. You should be investing regularly into your church. But I don't care about your money. God's going to do his work. And the money's going to come in. Students come to faith and they're all concerned about the money. School after school is closing. People contact Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. We're looking for a pastor. Uh, yeah, you know, we've got several seminary students here, and guess what? They're already got ministries lined up. We don't have anybody. Your money? What about you? What about your children? Pray the Lord of the harvest he would send forth laborers. And I would love nothing more than that each of my children enter the ministry in full-time Christian service. And whether that means the pastor of some big church or the pastor of some little church, I just want them to be faithful. I don't want them to be serving the Lord. I want them to be treasuring up. Uh, I want them to be storing up treasures in heaven, not here on the earth, because who cares about money? Especially when Biden just keeps printing more money and giving it away to everybody anyway. Who cares about it? Don't live for that. And if God's blessed you, be generous. Be giving it away. Invest in, in people, especially people that are in the ministry because they're poor, okay? And that's your pastor. God's provided for me. We don't need any money. I don't want this. Don't say any of that, okay? You have a young man that's interested in the ministry. Get him some money and get him through it. Invest in him. God doesn't come with money. You your kids. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp this week. You have given us so much, Lord. We deserve your wrath. But you've given us the blood of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Everything I have, money, life, children, you gave them all to me. They are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.